My talk today, it revolves around the lives of these three Irish sisters, as Bernadette says, they were based around the 18th century. And uh, the eldest sister, Catherine Connolly, she was a Connolly of Castletown House. And um, her letters were published by the IMC last December, and I'm delighted that they're out there for people to use. Her other sister was Jane Bonnell. She was uh, based mainly in England, and Mary Jones of County Meath. And through their letters to and from each other, we can gain an insight into life as these three sisters uh, lived it in an elite 18th century Irish family. And also we can see the lives of people around them, their trials and tribulations, their failures and successes, socially, politically, and economically. And these letters, I think, are important in that they shine a light on the, uh, the various roles that women played, not only in their own families, but also in the wider um, household and in the political background. And this is at a point in history where women were largely neglected. And I'm very happy to say that recent research has brought that forward and women are now becoming the focus of uh, more intensive research. So three sisters, Catherine, Jane and Mary, nay Cunningham, they lived through the early part of the 18th century. And this was a time when Ireland was becoming much more uh, politically stable. Um, the Williamite Wars were over, uh, King James had been defeated at the Battle of the Boyne and the Protestant William and Mary had secured the throne. This was also a period that saw the emergence of the Irish Protestant ascendancy, a group of elites who controlled religion, land and politics. And Catherine and her husband, Speaker William Connolly, were members of this elite group and were also responsible for building the great Palladian mansion that we see today, known as Castletown House in County Kildare. Now, the sisters, uh, their paternal grandfather, Reverend Alexander Cunningham, he settled at Mount Charles, or Mount Charles, in County Donegal, and he married Marion Murray. She was the daughter of John Murray of Wigtonshire in Scotland and was also the grandniece of the Earl of Glencairn. And this is a Scottish connection that the Cunninghams, and particularly Catherine, she was extremely proud of. Um, so, Reverend Alexander Cunningham and his wife, Marion, uh, they had... Keep me organised. Uh, they had 27 children. Allegedly, allegedly, I say allegedly. Um, I can't prove that. But at least 10 of these children survived uh, into adulthood. Five sons and five daughters. And it's the, the descendants and the collateral relations from this uh, group, the Leslies, the Montgomerys, the Knoxes, the Corries, the Hamiltons and the McCausland's, and these are the people who feature among the many cousins referred to in all the sisters' letters. The sisters' father, Sir Albert Cunningham, of, again, of Mount Charles, County de Gunnigal, he was the third son of the Reverend Alexander and Marion Cunningham. And Sir Albert married Margaret Leslie. She was the daughter of Reverend Henry Leslie of Hillsborough County Down. And they are, again, related to the um, Leslies of Castle Leslie, the same family. 
And they had nine children, and four of those survived to adulthood. And these were, pardon me, these were Catherine, Henry, Jane, Mary. And Catherine, born 1662, she was the writer of the published letters. She married William Speaker Connolly in 1694. Henry, he died in 1707, and he married Mary Williams, Lady Shelburne, in 1696 and had issue, that I will speak about later. Jane, she was born circa 1670, and she died in 1745, and she married James Bonnell in 1693. And the youngest was Mary. She was born in 1675 and died in 1765. And she married Richard Jones of Dollinstown, Kilcock County Meath in 1707. So the exchange of letters in uh, uh, 18th century family life was an extremely, it played an extremely important part in their political life, in their family life and their political life. And they were the only way of knowing who married who, who was ill, who had died, who had recovered, and if there was an inheritance at the end of it all, or a bequest. So they were extremely important, and politically they were essential for keeping abreast of the latest developments and appointments, and hopefully anticipating which way the wind might blow politically. And the recipient of most of Catherine Connolly's surviving letters, written between 1707 and 1747, was her widowed sister, Jane Bonnell, and Jane, who was living in England. Their other sister, Mary, was also more inclined to correspond with Jane than with Catherine, and this isn't really surprising, given that Jane um, and Catherine lived relatively close to each other in Dublin, Kildare and Meath, and saw each other frequently. For the three Cunningham sisters, the correspondence between them formed a crucial part of their daily lives. And through it, each sister developed and adopted their own strategy for negotiating their individual positions within and without the family. And for Jane Bonnell in England, this was to act as an intermediary, not only between her sisters, Catherine and Mary, but also between her wayward Cunningham nephews. Although Catherine, Jane and Mary's handwriting is fairly clear, they used little punctuation and their spelling is often erratic, to say nothing about the lack of dating, particularly on Mary Jones's letters, which makes it extremely frustrating when you're dealing with them. And uh, this uh, lack of punctuation and spelling um, is not a poor reflection on the sisters' education. Incorrect and inconsistent spelling, particularly among 18th century women, was not unusual. Women were poorly instructed in literacy. Jane Lovell Edgeworth of Edgeworthstown in County Kildare, or uh, County Longford, excuse me, she was taught only enough to read the Bible and cast up a week's household accounts. As far as her mother was concerned, that was enough education for any woman. An interesting point about Catherine's letters, though, is that if you read them, they were written phonetically, and if you read them out aloud, you can, you can hear her voice uh, in the letters, and we can actually imagine that we can hear her talking with a North of Ireland accent tinged with a hint of Scots. 
Now, the Cunninghams, they were a military family. The sister's father and brother both died in action. Sir Albert was killed in 1691 at Colooney, County Sligo, while their brother, Lieutenant General Henry Cunningham, he was killed at the Battle of Alamansa, Spain, in 1707 during the War of Spanish Succession. And if you look at this image here, although it's broken into um, two, this is from the crypt of the church in Colooney County Sligo, and it's the memorial to Sir Albert Cunningham. So we can see his face on one part of it, but if we look at the shield, we can see all the emblems celebrating the family's military strength and interests. And this was erected by the family sometime after 1707, probably in the old abbey in Colooney. And when that was um, demolished, it was moved to the new church in Colooney, where it is to this day. It's a massive piece that weighs a ton, um, but it's survived remarkably well for uh, something that's been moved backwards and forwards. So the eldest Cunningham sister, Catherine, she married William Connolly of Ballyshannon, County Kildare in 1694. And William was the eldest of 10 children of Patrick Connolly and Jane Cohn. And it would be an understatement to say that William Connolly was ambitious. He was determined to make a name for himself, both financially and politically, away from provincial Donegal, with apologies to anybody from Donegal. Um, with money from his marriage settlement to Catherine, he bought estates confiscated from Jacobite sympathisers, and briefly he was made Commissioner of Revenue in 1709 and unanimously elected Speaker of the Irish House of Commons in 1715. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that Catherine loved her husband, and her reverence, references to him, both when he was alive and when he um, and afterwards, they're full of affection and respect. And she rarely left his side as he lay dying. And a brief notes to her sister Jane at that time are poignant with fear. Following William's death in 1729, Catherine went into a really deep and profound mourning. And it's estimated that this mourning cost her between two and three thousand pounds, a huge amount of money at that time. And her behavior at this time was a cause of great concern to all members of the family. From 1691, William Connolly lived at Rodenstown, County Meath. The area is actually in County Meath, but it is literally just outside Kilcock, County Kildare. And in 1707, he purchased a substantial house on the north bank of the River Liffey uh, on Dublin's Capel Street. But as well as an impressive house in the city, the Connollys also required a, an imposing house in the country. Not too far from Dublin, where they could entertain and William could court his political connections. And as a result, Connolly bought the Castletown estate in Kildare in 1709. And this was a discreet location. It was away from Dublin spying eyes. And in 1722, construction of the Great Palladian Mansion that survives today commenced. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about the house. Uh, suffice to say that contemporary um, reaction to the mansion was not always favourable. Catherine's sister, Mary Jones, disparaging 
Lee described Castletown as the grey tower my sister has made. Now, the building of Castletown, it wasn't complete when Speaker Connolly died in 1729. And though a lot had been done, it was still only a shell. So the remaining development, building and furnishing of the house was probably carried out under Catherine's direction, which is a formidable achievement for a woman at this time. Now, Catherine, she certainly preferred Castletown. She, um, Cable Street, she condemned as damp and didn't like it. And it was during the 1730s that Castletown, um, the house, came fully into use as a centre of public and private functions, all overseen by Catherine. As the historian Toby Barnard argues, Castletown was never designed as a place of rural seclusion. It was always full of people. And while Catherine's life was ostensibly private and domestic, in many instances it ran parallel to her husband's political one while he was alive. Catherine frequently wrote political letters dictated to her and signed by her husband, Speaker Connolly. His handwriting was truly appalling. Um, but sad to say, no letters remain of Catherine's that we could term purely political. She did engage in political commentary in many of her letters, so she was fully aware of the machinations of government. And this leads me to suspect that at some stage the archive was tidied. Um, there are other reasons why I suspect it was tidied, but the fact that there are absolutely no purely political letters would suggest that it possibly was tidied by somebody somewhere. Um, Catherine, as the wife of William Connolly, she was a channel for people seeking favours from government. And for those who sought positions at Dublin Castle or in government employment or even clerical appointments, they would often approach William Connolly through Catherine. And while Speaker Connolly was alive, he, with Catherine's support, dispensed favours and promoted their family's political interests. And it's interesting to note that at one time, the extended Cunningham and Connolly families returned 13 members of Parliament, all of whom were ostensibly under William Connolly's control. And by the time of his death in 1729, Connolly's, the Connolly's combined income from lands and government positions amounted to just short of £32,000 per annum, giving him the reputation of being the richest commoner in Ireland. So this power, position and wealth, it gave Catherine a strong sense of her own importance. And with reason when her husband was alive, um, after William's death, she mourned her loss of political influence and she clung desperately to what power she had. She was secured by her social and financial position and Catherine, the formidable matriarch of the family, she took a very close interest in her extended family's business and welfare, whether they liked it or not. She was going to see what was going on. And she would reprimand them severely when she disagreed with their actions or if they had acted without consulting her first. When Catherine offered unsolicited advice to her um, Connolly um, nephew's wife, Lady Anne Connolly, on the subject of choosing servants for their um, leak slip home, an annoyed Lady Anne Connolly responded 
pretty warmly that when she hired servants, it should be to please herself and not her husband's aunt. Catherine's sister, Mary Jones, reported to Jane Bonnell also that my sister is angry with Henry Cunningham for not supporting a member of Killybegs of her recommending. And in 1727, Catherine wrote some 40 letters to assist her nephew by marriage, Frank Burton, in his campaign to seek election to Parliament. And she also advised her sister Jane Bonnell during Jane's long-running uh, legal dispute with her nephew, William Cunningham, and after William's death, his brother Henry, concerning the mortgage Jane held on the Cunningham Donegal estates. Uh, the sister closest to Catherine was Jane Cunningham. And unfortunately, I've searched high up and low down and I can't find any images of Jane or indeed of Mary. Uh, Jane Cunningham, she married James Bonnell in 1693 and they had two sons who died young and Rebecca, a daughter, who died circa six years old. Bonnell, he was born at Genoa in 1653. He was renowned for his piety and devoutness. And every night he would say prayers, read the scriptures and pious religious tracts with his family and servants for one hour. On Sundays, he would discourage visitors, preferring to spend it in prayer and contemplation with his own family. Now, to show the closeness of all the families in the political world, Bonnell was appointed Accountant General of Ireland, and in 1695, he was appointed Secretary of the Forfeitures Commission, and this was a position that was again in close proximity uh, to his brother-in-law, William Connolly. Following Bonnell's death of a malignant fever in April 1699, his widow Jane moved to England and lived in lodgings first in London and later at Rittle near Chelmsford, Essex, where she died in 1745. Now, Jane's income from her late husband's estate was small and it was further reduced when the exchange rate between England and Ireland fell in 1701. However, Jane believed that she was an astute manager of money and she invested in stocks mainly through Hoare's Bank in London and she also acted as a stock jobber for her friends. She also bought and sold lottery tickets and it is possible that the, it was the receipts from these that enabled her to buy shares. She invested in South Sea Company stock in 1719 and also advised some of her women friends to purchase shares in the company. Now, Jane's precarious financial uh, situation was a topic that was frequently discussed between the sisters, um, particularly between her wealthy sister Catherine and her less uh, well-off sister Mary. And in 1721, Jane's uh, financial worries were exacerbated when she lost a considerable sum of money when the South Sea bubble did burst. Her finances were further impaired by two long-running disputes, one involving loans she made to the King family, and the other, as I have said, the mortgage she held on the Cunningham's Donegal estate. But it was Catherine's financial independence that allowed her to support her sister Jane during times of particular hardship for her. And funnily enough, this was a provision that Catherine rarely applied to their other sister, Mary. 
Catherine also made provision for Jane in the event of Catherine's death. And aware of how these things could go horribly wrong, she tried to ring-fence that bequest to, to Jane to keep it out of her Cunningham nephew's hands, just solely for Jane's use. And as I've said, letters to and from Ireland, they provided an important activity for Jane in London. While alive, she um, corresponded frequently on a diversity of financial matters with Catherine's husband, William Connolly. And she also solicited jobs for friends and family directly through him. And Jane frequently lent money when she could to her nephew, Roger Jones. This was Mary Jones's son. Uh, who found it difficult to make a profit from farming at Dolanstown, the Jones family farm in Meath. And following Roger, um, Roger Jones' father's death, also in 1729, the Jones family were no longer involved in politics, and thus farming was Roger's only source of income. He had difficulty, he diversified into orchards into numerous different activities but each one of them every time um, he did this something would happen like a tornado or a hurricane or a storm and destroy uh, his potential um, source of income so Roger struggled throughout um, the life and Jane herself she was always um, willing to chase an outstanding debt or an inheritance for someone based in Ireland or to pay their London debts. And her sister Mary did this for Jane in Ireland. So it was a vice versa um, arrangement. And Jane, she also acted as a conduit for parcels coming to and from um, London to Ireland. She was also responsible for the purchase of linen, for jewellery, for furniture. And she was the first to relay the latest London fashions to both her sisters. And one commission that Catherine Connolly charged Jane with was the design and purchase of a mourning ring following the death of Catherine's beloved Connolly niece, Nancy Pearson. Um, when Nancy died in 1736, Catherine sent Jane a piece of Nancy's hair, requesting that it be set into a mourning ring surrounded with diamonds by which she could remember her. And it's not often that my research in archives can bring slight sort of lump to my throat. But poignantly, when I looked at this letter, there was some of Nancy's soft brown hair was still to this day attached to it, which kind of makes it that little bit more personal. And Jane was also able to satisfy her sister Catherine's insatiable desire for drinking chocolate or Jacquelet, as she called it, and that I think is with a nod to the French. If you go from chocolate to chocolat, in Catherine's words, it was jacquelet and it was written as jacquelet. <laughs> Took me a while to think, oh, what is that? Yeah. But it is chocolate. And at one point in the 1730s, Catherine was so desperate for chocolate, for her drinking chocolate that she badgered, she literally wrote a letter badgering Jane to send over 12 pounds of it with anyone. And it was urgent. So she must have been really into her chocolate. And so in the 18th century and before the establishment of the postal service, letters were never really considered private. And this was the case with between the three sisters. 
They could be opened in transit, they could be lost, they could be stolen, or they could just miscarry. Um, when they were received, they were commonly read aloud and passed around the assembled company um, in Castletown or if Catherine was in Capel Street. And this, they were read there, and this could also be seen as providing a public recognition of Catherine's benevolence to her sisters and to her extended family. And Mary and Jane both used this habit or custom for their own ends. Mary would suggest to Jane to write and tell Catherine that she, Jane, had received a letter from Mary owning great kindness that Mary had received from Catherine. All right, just making sure you know it. And sometimes Catherine, or Mary would inform Catherine that her son-in-law, Ralph Sampson, had sent a hogshead of wine to Jane in London that Catherine had offered to pay for. But while the wine uh, may not actually have been sent, the money always was. As far as Catherine was concerned, everything had gone, money and wine. But if, if letters were commonly read out aloud in company, there were also occasions when a degree of privacy was required. And Jane did also address her letters to Mary, care of her son, Ralph Sampson. And this occurred particularly when Mary was staying in Castletown. And this meant that Catherine couldn't read the letters that she was getting from Jane and, not, and she wouldn't know what herself and Jane were up to, shall we say. And although Jane appears to have been a valued and treasured member of the extended Cunningham family, she was constantly kept abreast of Irish and family affairs by her sisters, Catherine and Mary. Um, family and fin kinfolk, if they were travelling into or through England, they always stopped and visited with Jane. She was also entrusted with the care of children who were going to and from school in England, and she was a refuge for those nephews sent home from school when ill. Time and again, Jane was the first to be informed by her nephews and grandnephews of their latest deaths or transgressions. And their letters to Jane would appeal to Jane to plead their case with and soften their aunt and uncle Connolly's tempers. In July 1721, Williams Cunningham, who was their nephew, wrote to Jane that he did not dare acquaint his uncle Connolly of the true extent of his debts, because if I had told him the whole, I am convinced he will be in such a passion that I should never have been able to have brought him to temper, or I thought it was better not to risk it. Williams had only acknowledged half of his debts to his uncle Connolly, but he confidently admitted the whole to his aunt Jane. So she was definitely someone you could trust. But while the whole family, uh, while family was always important to Jane, in her eyes, her most significant uh, legacy was her commitment to the publication shortly after his death in 1699 of The Exemplary Life and Character of James Bonnell, Esquire, by the Reverend William Hamilton. And this was a book designed to preserve the pious reputation of Jane's deceased husband, James Bonnell. Jane had actually engaged quite extensively with um, various editors who uh, were employed to produce this book. And she, there's numerous letters, long and lengthy letters, where she would argue just the minute points within um, the um, publication of this letter. So 
If we go on to the youngest of the three Cunningham sisters, Mary Cunningham, uh, she married Richard Jones of Dolanstown in uh, 1707. And Mary was also much closer to his sister Jane than she was to Catherine. According to Mary, her temperament and outlook was due to the care Jane took of me when I was young. It was the greatest happiness of my life, for I hope I shall never forget the good instructions you gave me. As the years progressed, Mary Jones found dealing with her sister Catherine increasingly difficult. She was reluctant to stay with her in Dublin or Castletown. Mary was, she seems to be uh, of a much more retiring personality than um, Catherine, and she disliked crowds. And after Mary's death in 1729, her financial position was never as secure as Catherine's. And although she had been left amply provided for, Mary quickly passed on her, to her son Roger her husband's bequest to her, leaving her with just an annuity of £200 per annum. This was an action that Catherine was very, very quick and very loud to criticise. And Catherine's ability to hold a grudge was legendary. It's, she really could just take it and keep it and nurse it. And um, she was not one to forgive and forget ever. Uh, she had helped to secure an ecclesiastical preferment for one clergyman, and she felt that he was not grateful enough. And in 1729, she vowed to take double pains to hinder him of any other. So she don't mess with Catherine. And as family, neither Mary nor Catherine, they, they just couldn't help it being drawn into family and political disagreements. Mary's husband, Richard Jones of Dolanstown, as a member of parliament for Killybegs, a seat again in William Connolly's gift, angered William Connolly in 1709 by failing to vote as desired by Earl Wharton, the Lord Lieutenant. Over the years, this disagreement uh, festered and William Connolly refused to support Richard in the 1713 election. Now, perhaps unbeknownst to Richard, maybe, maybe not, Mary wrote appealing letters to William Connolly and to her sister Catherine, asking them to support her husband, but to no avail. To Mary's dismay, Catherine sided with her husband, William. Mary then wrote to her sister, Jane Bonnell, begging her to use her utmost endeavours to soften Brother Connolly, for I'm sure nobody has a greater influence on him than you, but again, to no avail. The repercussions of this incident simmered away in the background and left a lingering bad feeling on all sides. Now, it was Catherine's force of personality and her economic position that particularly upset the equilibrium between Mary and uh, Catherine. And though generous to many uh, relations, as I've mentioned, Catherine was disposed to be difficult with those uh, with certain family members. And in this instance, Catherine's dislike for her sister Mary's daughter and son-in-law, Ralph Sampson, was apparent. Now, previously, Ralph Sampson had spoken ill of William Connolly, and he was also engaged in trade. He was merchant. And Catherine failed to provide for the Sampson family to the same extent as she did for other family members. 
A gift to Jane of old linen aprons to make baby clothes stands in sharp contrast to the valuable clothes and cradle she ordered for her grandnephew, Albert Cunningham, that cost 11 guineas, and the cradle she ordered in advance of the birth of Lady Anne Connolly's first child that cost the not inconsiderable sum of £61 in 1733. To add insult to injury, Catherine also spent substantial sums of money on clothes and jewellery for those nieces living with her, but never on Samson children. Though Jane Bonnell supported Roger Jones financially when she could, Catherine was always quite erratic in her gifts to anybody in the Jones family. And this slight, not only to herself, but also to her family, was felt quite deeply by Catherine's sister and Jane Samson's mother, Mary Jones. For example, Mary detailed and recorded every gift that Catherine made to her and her family in her letters to her sister Jane. And it's true that Catherine had uh, certainly had her favourites among her relations, both in life, but she also had in death. And not all children's deaths in the family were equally mourned. Jane and Ralph Sampson's marriage produced at least 15 children, most of whom died in early childhood. They possibly had some genetic disorder, as when they were with their wet nurses, they seemed to thrive, but once they were brought back to within the family, um, they just seemed to um, fade away through sickness. And they are all buried at Rodenstown Church in County Meath, which is adjacent to Dolanstown House. As far as I'm aware, only one, a girl, Isabella, survived and eventually married. And throughout her letters, Catherine expressed absolutely no distress at any of these Samson children's deaths. Indeed, she appears quite heartless as to their fate, declaring at one stage, they are all the most miserable rotten children as ever was born. She, Jane Samson, their mother, is a great and foul breeder. Harsh, that is harsh, harsh, harsh. And although Catherine claimed that she led a quiet life, writing and sewing, it's through Mary's letters that we see a very different lifestyle. Castletown House was constantly filled with Connolly and Cunningham relations and with other political and social guests. Mary observed that Catherine was fond of crowds and very young folks and was surprised she had time to do anything she entertained so much. Now, Catherine, the robust and ruddy-faced widow, as Toby Barnard described her, she was secure in her ample wealth to behave as she chose rather than as fashion decreed. And Catherine did just that. She was fond of gambling, and she and her nephew by marriage, Frank Burton, ran up considerable debt losses playing the card game Bassett, which, though banned at Dublin Castle, Catherine blithely continued to play it in Castletown. Also, some of the invited company to Castletown were of doubtful social and moral character and in the view of the straight-laced Mary Jones, inappropriate. Uh, one such was the Drury Lane actress, Kitty Clive, and uh, Catherine had her seated at her own table for dinner one evening where people of the first rank were seated, a thing that absolutely scandalised Mary. And it's perhaps just this boisterousness and such an eclectic um, guest list that, as uh, Rachel Wilson argues, prevented Castletown and particularly Catherine from becoming a serious political hostess. Now, following William Connolly's death in 1729, um, 
Catherine had been left extremely wealthy and crucially she was now financially independent of male relatives and this was a rare occurrence in 18th century Ireland. She could dispense gifts and loans of money to whoever she wished and her relations were quick to solicit her. But Catherine could be easily swayed and her family considered her fickle in her choice of favourites. Colonel Dalway, who had married her brother's widow, Lady Shelburne, um, he noted angrily that Catherine was governed and imposed upon by those about her. Approached by her nephew, Frank Burton, for a loan, he claimed he had declined to avail of money from anyone else, as he was afraid Catherine would take it ill should he ask money from anybody but her. As her sister Mary observed, he knows very well how to make his court on my sister. But while Catherine was generous to those around her, she was also careful not to appear too charitable. She wrote to her sister Jane, saying, I have a great fortune, it's true, more than I ever expected. But the more one has, the more is expected from them. And I have more demands than I can possibly answer. Now, this declaration of parsimony may have been a particular ploy of Catherine's because according to Mary, when she was in Dublin with Mary, she would claim that um, she um, had a shortage of money. But from Mary's point of view, it was because she was afraid I'd ask her for the loan of some. But Catherine did help the deserving poor. She built the granaries and um, the obelisk for um, times of hardship for her tenants. And she used to send cartloads of bread down from Dublin, um, during, particularly during the severe winter of 39-41. And if I just, because I want to leave time for questions here, if I just skip on, um, the Catherine's, one of the features of their, significant features of their um, life was the guardianship of their nieces and nephews. And this was Williams Cunningham, Henry Cunningham, and Mary and Missy Cunningham. And Williams, the eldest, was um, a trouble to the family. And he, again, his behaviour featured in uh, the letters between all the children, or between Mary, the sisters. And he was described as um, a rake. Um, he led a rowdy lifestyle. He caroused throughout Dublin. And by the time he had, was 14, Williams had contracted venereal disease and just totally disregarded his own and anybody else's health. Um, and in an effort to remove him from bad company, the family sent him off on the grand tour of Europe. And everything was fine. He was traveling throughout Europe with his tutor, William Caldwell, and he got to Amsterdam. And in Amsterdam, he met a lady, Wilhelmina Adamina Nairop, and he engaged to marry, much to the family's consternation. Again, he did this in London, and again, he would write to his Aunt Jane to ask her to intervene on his behalf, to soften his aunt and Uncle Connolly's tempers. And um, he, uh, he then um, had a son, Albert, who died later in Slain, and then Adamina died sometime shortly after the marriage. And a year later, Williams married again without any consultation with the family, Constance Middleton, again in London. And he neglected Constance financially and emotionally. 
and again this was a matter of great concern for all the family and Catherine generous as she was she tried to help her but Constance at first refused but her circumstances were so dire that she had to accept small amounts of money from Catherine and Williams did die um, did die in Slane uh, at the age of 44 years his brother, Henry Cunningham, he was less of a worry to the Connollys. Um, Catherine thought him lazy, though good-natured, and um, he learned to dance, fence, and the mathematics, which, according to Catherine, was the extent of his capabilities. Again, Henry went off and married, without consulting the family, Ellen Merritt of London, and again, he had pleaded with his aunt, um, Jane, to intervene on his behalf and again smooth the, the way for um, his new wife to arrive. Catherine's comment on that was young men and old women seldom think the same way, which is quite true. Yeah. Uh, raising her niece, um, Williams and Henry's sister Mary, or as the family called her, Missy Cunningham, this was a much more tender affair. Catherine lavished love and attention on Mary. And the night before um, Missy died, or married Frank Burton of Buncraggy County um, Clare, Catherine presented her with a long letter of advice on uh, marriage. And it was pious and practical. And Catherine advised that a wife should make a comfortable home and peaceful home for her husband. And with a certain degree of foresight, she emphasized how to behave towards her future mother-in-law, a lady who subsequently turned out to be very, very difficult to deal with. Now, as I said about letters being opened, Catherine was aware of the um, consternation that uh, Missy's mother-in-law, Alice, was causing in the house in County um, Clare. And Catherine wrote a very pointed letter to Missy, knowing full well that Alice, her mother-in-law, would open and read it first. And of course, Alice did. She opened the letter, realized what was being said, flew into a temper, tacked her son, um, Frank Burton, demanded action, and then flounced out of the house. And as Catherine wrote to Jane, this was exactly what she wanted. Alice was now knew exactly where she should be, and Missy, you know, so um, it was the exact um, result she wanted. As I said, there were grandnieces that she raised, Nancy Pearson, whose um, hair was in the morning ring, and she would raise them, she would um, educate them, and she would present them to Dublin society. And there was her, Missy's daughter, Molly, who was also called Mary, she presented her with this beautiful cabinet, which is still to be seen in Castletown House today. Now, as Catherine's nieces and nephews died and she got older, we can see in her letters her loneliness and vulnerability. And she also became involved with her Connolly nephew, Lady Anne Connolly. But Lady Anne Connolly had got the measure of Catherine and she restricted her access to the Connolly children. And Catherine would come to Dublin. When the Connollys went to England, Catherine would come to Dublin and wait there, sometimes for weeks at an end. But Catherine, she died at Castletown the 23rd of September, 1745. She was probably seven, 90 years old. 
And 13 years later, on the 9th of May, 1765, the Gentleman and London's magazine carried the announcement of the death of Mary Jones, relict of Richard Jones of Dollenstown, County Meath, and sister of Catherine Connolly, deceased. So we can see here that even in death, the ties that bound Mary and Jane to their more famous sister, Catherine, endured. Thank you.